yeah, yeah, you've got this. You've got this, Nicole. You are going to be the next associate marketing manager. You sound pretty confident. I, I am. I am confident. The phone interview went well. I've done my research. I've prepped. That's a first. Did any of your research tell you that your shirt belongs in 2001? I like this shirt. It's flattering. Seriously? I mean, what does the shirt even say about you? I don't know. That's a lot of responsibility for a shirt. Plus, my mom says I look great in green. You know, you really got to stop being best buds with your mom. Because your mom isn't going to get you this job. Even though she's dug you out of every other hole you've dug for yourself. You're still using her Netflix password, right? Yeah. That's what I thought. Oh, looking good. You're going to crush this. You sound convinced. No room for errors here. You know, know what's on the line. I know, I know. Just one interview away from landing this job. Right, so make sure you get there early so you don't blow your cover with that dusty Volvo you call a car. Hey, she's a classic. Kelly and I had our first date in that car. And your last. When was the last time you could afford to take her somewhere other than Chick-fil-A? Look, <laughs> things are just tight right now. I'm figuring it out. This job could change everything. This is the role. I can just, I feel it. You might want to rethink that one. Three jobs in three years doesn't exactly make you look qualified. By the way, while you're giving yourself this little pep talk, all your friends are having careers and getting married. Speaking of which, did you RSVP to that engagement party? Oh, no, shoot, I forgot. Not surprised. You're the most disorganized person we know. Maybe I won't go. Well, I would want her to come to mine. So Yours? You should be so lucky. I mean, what's the point of an RSVP anyway? It's not like anyone will notice if you don't come. Will this job change the fact that your hairline is receding at an alarming rate? <sighs> it's just the stress. I'm sure once everything settles down, it'll start filling back in. By the way, did you see that post online, all your friends after that pickup game? Did you get an invite to that? <sighs> no, but I had to work anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, you should keep that up. Those student loans aren't going to pay themselves off. It's wild to think that Kelly agreed to marry you with that much debt. I, I think, think it's, it's time, time you start, start having more realistic expectations. Well, I... You're not, not a, a good friend. friend. That's not true. I... You let people down. You don't... No, you don't. You're not, not funny, funny, attractive, or interesting. I'm trying. And, and what, what do you, you have, have to show for it? A 600-square-foot apartment and a cat. A degree I'll never use and a son who doesn't notice me. And, and all, all of that, that comes from? from? My crippling fear of failure. My inability to get out of my own way. Because, because the reality is... People, people only spend, spend time, time with me because they, they feel, feel sorry, sorry for me. me. And, and the, the truth, truth is, is, I'm just not special. Do you ever feel like your brain is trying to kill you? This thing my brain does, it wakes me up every morning. At, not every morning, maybe twice a week, once a week. 1 a.m. It's always 1 a.m. I don't know if I was like attacked by a clown as a child at 1 a.m. or something, but at 1 a.m., I wake up with, with this weight of guilt on me. It's kind of like that feeling you get, or maybe just I get, sometimes where you're walking through your day and you're feeling really stressed out, but you don't really remember why. You kind of have to rack your brain and say like, wait, wait, why am I stressed out? Then you remember and it comes all tumbling back. That's how I feel at, at 1 a.m., but it's, but it's guilt about things that I did the day before. And I feel like what my brain does in that moment is, is kind of like that ghost of Christmas past, present, and yet to come in that Charles Dickens movie where... 
my brain takes me into the window to kind of show me how my day was yesterday and yet to point out all the stupid things that I did along the way. It says, hey, watch this conversation. See what you're about to say here? That's ridiculous. Hey, watch this, watch this, watch this. Now you leave the room. Now start to imagine what they're going to say about you once you're gone. Hey, hey, remember what what you said to your kids yesterday? Remember what you said to your wife yesterday? Hey, remember what you said on the platform yesterday. And remember all those people who came and smiled at you and said they appreciated you? You know that's a lie, right? Kind of like Brian said, you know people just like you because they have to, because they work for you. They go to your church. You know you're not really as special as you pretend like you are. And I just kind of lay there. It's like my brain is like a bad football coach showing me all the tapes from the day before just to point out how stupid I am. And I just kind of pray that I could fall asleep. And then I know that when I wake up, things will get better. That's what I mean when I say (laughs) our brains are trying to kill us. Now, some of us experience that in the middle of the night. Some of us experience that when we look in the mirror in the morning. Some of us just experience that all day long, every day. I talked to a guy after the first service this morning who said, uh, uh, can I tell you what my brain says to me? I said, absolutely. He said, my, my brain says this to me all day long. It says, you are a worthless piece of garbage. I said, well, what do you say back? He said, nothing, I just believe it. All day long, my brain, my brain, my brain is telling me these things that are lies about myself. Now, some of us experience this at, at, a, at a deeper level. At a, at a clinical level, through depression or anxiety, or we're working through medication and working with our mental health professionals and all that. that that's not what I'm talking about in, in this series. That's, that's a different level of mental illness that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about in this series is what affects every single person who's ever walked planet Earth since the Garden of Eden, which is that in our brains there is something broken that wars against us and tries to destroy us. It's the reason that you look at that bowl of chips and can't not eat all of them. It's the reason that there's this deep longing in your heart for children or for a wife or for a husband or for a family or for a house. And no matter how much you say, I don't need those things, there's something in you that just distresses you because you don't have them. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that some of us have things about our personalities that are pushing people away all the time. And it seems like everyone can see it, but us, like our brain is operating us from the inside out and just trying to destroy our lives. The question I want to ask as we begin to embark on this series is, where is God in all of this? And we sat down a few weeks ago as, as Lindsay and some others were writing this sketch that we would see this morning. And, and the big question is, where's the voice of God in this sketch and what we wanted to do was end the sketch with God booming from the heavens and rebuking these evil thoughts and kicking them out and saying, don't talk to my daughter that way. Don't talk to my son that way. And yet it felt weird to have God come into that conversation. And so we said, okay, well, what, where does God normally play into this conversation that we have in the mirror, this conversation that we have in the middle of the night, this conversation that we're having all day at the workplace? What's God normally say? And all of us just kind of looked at each other and said, I feel like God's not really ever involved in that conversation. And sometimes it feels like God is just one of those people standing off on the side with his arms folded saying, I can't believe you think this about yourself. Right, or God is the person heaping insults on us saying, yeah, see, that's true. That's true about you. You're a sinner. 
Right? Or God is saying like, hey, I wish you would stop thinking that way because I've got some great plans for you allegedly. Right? And God's involved in some way, but he's off in the distance and he's sad or his face is in his palm or he's angry. Or we haven't ever thought about what God might think or how he might want to interact with the narrative going on inside of our skull. And the passage that I want to look at this morning as we embark on this series together, what I see is that God does want to be involved. Is that God's posture towards us is not one of anger towards this or discouragement or frustration, but God sees us in our pain and desires to bring transformation even into our minds. And yet the chilling reality that I see in this text in Romans chapter 12 that we'll read together here is that in the state that we find ourselves in, a lot of times we can't even see or sense or test or understand the will of God because our brains have clouded our thinking. This is the Apostle Paul writing in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray together as we dive into this text this morning. Father, we come to you this morning partially ashamed for, for what we think about all the time, and partially relieved that maybe we might find some relief. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who, who struggles with these things at a clinical level, walks through seasons of despair or discouragement, is in a season even now of deep anxiety and working to kind of get everything under control. We pray that, that you would meet them in that place too, that you would use the folks that you've assembled around them, the doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists and mental health professionals and social workers, and that you'd be part of that team too to bring restoration and transformation and, and tools to navigate this brain that you've given us, albeit fallen and broken in many ways. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room because none of us are immune to this at, at a day-to-day -day level, that, that you would give us the grace to see where this affects us, that you would come into this process with us, that you would bring us hope and healing and restoration in the midst of all this. And, that, and even as we talk about this this morning and start this conversation, that you would show us how you might step into this process and start to bring us healing. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. You might argue with me about some of these things, but I don't think any of you would argue with me when I tell you that the world that we live in today doesn't help when it comes to the struggles inside our brains. I went and saw the new Avengers movie yesterday. I will spoil nothing, don't leave. I went to the new Avengers movie yesterday. And it was a reminder to me just how Hollywood works. You know, all these different famous actors from all over the world and actresses and people from different backgrounds and different races and different communities and different languages. And they're all on the screen just to show us a picture of what the perfect human specimen of that type should look like. 
Right, we get to see what, what a perfect human specimen from Asgard would look like. Right? We get to see what a perfect human specimen from Wakanda would look like. We get to see all these beautiful people. And in a sense, it inspires us. Right? We're like, ooh, I want to look like that. But then immediately we realize, but I don't. Right? I look in the mirror. I don't see Thor when I look in the mirror. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and there's this discouragement that comes with it as we see this mold, this pattern in the world that that we feel drawn to in one way, but on the other hand, it's this unattainable goal, and it's weird. We see these people fill up with confidence, and they're chopping people's heads off and things. It's like, whoa, I wish I had that confidence. I wish I had that leadership. I wish I had that courage, but I don't. I just sit here on my computer all day. I chop off things in video games, right? That's what I do. And if you're not into movies, go buy groceries at Safeway. You fill your cart full of things that you're pretty excited about. Ice cream, chips. And then you go to check out and they put all these pictures of these like skinny, beautiful people in the aisle right next to you. And they all judge you. They stand there and they look at you. <laughs> like you're buying that? You want to look like me? Right? I ate two pieces of celery today. Look like me. <laughs> Right? And then we start judging these people in the magazines. Then we start rationalizing. Right? We're, we're bouncing around in our own heads as we're trying to buy these things that we just want to eat because it makes us happy. And then we start thinking, why does food make me happy? Right? And we spiral and spiral and spiral. The world we live in does not help. It hurts. Because everywhere we go, we see these unattainable realities that one side of our brain knows that we'll never get but the other side of our brain really wants to get them. And one side of our brain knows that even if we did get them, we'd still be miserable. But then the other side of our brain wants them desperately anyway. You got that feeling, I need that car. I need to buy a house. I need to own property. Right? I need to be with someone. I need to have kids. I need to have friends. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. We need all these things because we're convinced that if we just have this thing that the world has shown us this picture of, then we'll be okay. In Romans 12, 2, the Apostle Paul says, do not conform to the world. And we talked in the last series about the way that the Apostle John describes the world, that the world, according to John, is the kingdom, the realm over which God does not reign. Yet the Apostle Paul uses the term a little bit differently. It's even a different Greek word here in Romans 12, 2, when he talks about the world. He's not talking about the world in terms of worldliness or anti-godliness. He's not talking about the world in terms of a kingdom of any sort. When Paul talks about the world, it's a word that normally is used in positive context to talk about God himself. Right? The, the age that God lives in, the space that God lives in, in the like space-time continuum, this era that God exists in, that he lives in an eternal world. He lives eternally. He lives outside of time. He lives in this kingdom that never ends, that it's with us, but it's different. God lives in this realm, this era. But then in the Bible, it's also used in a negative way, like here, when it talks about the, the age that we live in, the realm in which we live in, the systems and structures and cultures and practices and rhythms in which we exist. Other biblical authors will talk about saving ourselves from this present evil age. It's the same word. We see that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of people so they can't see God in this world, in this age. This is where we live in this place that's just different and it's everywhere. It's like the fishbowl in which we swim right now. 
And, and there's something about the water in this fishbowl that's poisoning us to death while we swim. I read in the news this morning about, you see this, these 19 kids in India who took their own lives because a computer malfunctioned and told them they didn't pass a test that they really wanted to pass. And the problem was not, I mean, the problem is the computer. The problem is not even these individual kids. The, the problem is that the, the water that they're swimming in is in, they're living in this age, in this era, where, where thousands and thousands and thousands of kids all over the country are trying to take this test to get into school to make a better life for themselves. And so many of these kids, their entire village, their entire community, their entire family has all invested in their future. They've pooled their resources and said, if you can just break out of this thing and find success, then we'll come with you. So everyone has sold everything to give them this one shot. And then the computer says, you're a failure. Everything comes dashing down. I was thinking this week a lot about that movie from Netflix last year, Bird Box. Did you see that? It's scary. You don't see it. It's a horror movie. The premise of this movie is that there's some evil monster spirit thing floating around the world. And there's something about it that's alluring, and so you want to just look at it. But the moment you look at it, lock eyes with this monster, you have this insatiable desire to take your own life immediately and radically. So it's just this crazy movie of everyone being drawn into this thing, and then boom, they just go step in front of a bus, and then boom, they're destroyed from the inside out immediately. And I watched this movie, and I thought, this thing is real. Right? All of us have these eyes that are looking all over the world for things that might make us happy and we're drawn to them like moths to a flame. And yet when we get there, it's like it just starts to destroy us from the inside out because everything our brain wants, it at least doesn't, def- doesn't fill us. And, and at worst, it, it takes us down from the inside out. Regarding this pattern of this world, the Apostle Paul says, do not conform to it. That's his command. It's not a command to do something. And it's not even a command to not do something. It's a command to not allow yourself to have something done to you. This word conform is kind of like that, the the verb that describes what happens when you take Play-Doh or clay and you squish it into a mold. Right? You're conforming it into this mold and saying, okay, you are a, a formable human being. You are a ball of clay. And the world has put up all these different molds and they look like supermodels and they look like Teslas and they look like bank accounts, they look like houses, right? They look like success and happiness and family and all these different things. It looks like all this stuff. They're all molds, Paul says. Don't let yourself get squished into these molds. Trust me, don't do it. Because there's something in every single one of us who's ever walked the planet that our brains are just trying to squish us into these things. But yet we're riddled with doubts and fears and anxieties and insecurities. And you know that the first thing that happened in the Bible when sin entered into the world was that a human being had a brain that broke on them? The first thing that happened, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and and everything is beautiful and it's wonderful. God says, don't eat from that one tree. And then the woman goes and takes the fruit and she eats of it. She gives it to the man. He eats of it and and their eyes are open. Sin enters into the world. And this is what Genesis 3, 7 says, the first thing that happens. The eyes of both of them were open. The first thing that happens, they realized 
they were naked. They didn't become naked. Genesis chapter 2 is very clear that the man and woman were both naked and they were unashamed. Right? That was the beauty of creation, was men and women living out in the world with no fear, no anxiety, no body image issues, no in- intimacy issues, no fear of wolves coming and attacking their naked bodies, right? Nothing. But the moment that sin entered the world, the first thing that broke was their brains, and they looked down, and they, they thought, what am I doing? I don't have any clothes on. And they started getting insecure about what they looked like or getting secure, insecure about being with this member of the opposite sex or being insecure about being out in the elements or being insecure about all these things. They realized they were naked and so they started making clothes out of leaves. And when God shows up, finds them, they're like nowhere to be found. And he goes to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I, I heard you coming and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And God looks at Adam, and he doesn't yell at him for being (laughs) naked. He doesn't yell at him for hiding. He doesn't even yell at him for, for eating the apple. God voices this deep concern. He says, Adam, who told you you were naked? How'd you find out? What changed in your brain since the last time I saw you? The last time you were naked and unashamed and now you're cowering behind a plant covered in fig leaves and terrified because you're exposed to the elements and to this woman that I gave you. Who told you? And from that day forward, our brain has tried to kill us in every way possible. Exposing our insecurities. Exposing our fears. Exposing our image issues. Exposing our shortcomings exposing the difference between the way we wish we were and the way that we actually are or think or perceive that we are. And so Paul gives us a command. He says, don't conform to it. Look at the supermodels. Don't look anymore. Don't look like, don't worry about it. Don't conform to that image. You don't need a Tesla, no worries. Hey, you don't need a house, right? Go live in a studio, you'll be fine. You don't need to live in the Bay Area. You know what, go live on the streets. You'll be fine, I'll give you food. You'll be okay, right? Don't worry about it. Go be warmed and filled, right? And we should be cheering, right? That God has given us permission to not care about all these things, but none of us are cheering. Three services in a row. No one's cheering. (laughs) Because no matter how much I tell you not to worry about these things, all of us know that the moment we get up out of our seats, we're going to start worrying about it again. How do we navigate this? Don't conform. You don't need to be like that. You don't need to worry about that anymore. No, 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 you're not unlovable. Don't worry about that. Now, some of us have said, you know what, maybe I need a a new image to conform to. (laughs) I'm sick of conforming to the standards of this world. I'm sick of conforming to the standards I see on the media. I'm sick of conforming to the standards I hear in my own home, right? I'm sick of it. I'm going to conform to something else, right? I'm going to conform into the image of Jesus Christ instead. Right? And so then we go to church, we try to kind of squish ourselves into the Christian mold instead and say, you know what, I'm going to look like Jesus, I'm going to talk like Jesus, I'm going to act like Jesus, I'm going to think like Jesus. But the problem is that doesn't work either. And that's how the Pharisee party got formed a few hundred years before Jesus. These people say, you know, we're going to do it differently, we're going to live differently, we're not going to err again, we're not going to sin again, we're just going to do better, we're going to create a different mold and we're going to squish ourselves into it by all means possible. But it didn't bring life because the problem was still in their brains and in their hearts. Some of us have tried to do that here in the States with like the whole Christian subculture thing. Right? You didn't go see Avengers because you went and saw a Christian movie instead. 
right? You didn't listen to the radio. You listen to Christian Spotify instead, right? You don't wear T-shirts. You wear Christian T-shirts instead, right? You find this Christian mold, this Christian subculture. I don't care about worldly things. I only care about Christian things. But it doesn't work, does it? You're still miserable. You're still struggling. You're still anxious. You're still stressed. You're still discouraged. You still go to bed feeling sad. It still happens. I think this is why Paul does not say, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be conformed to something else. Paul says, don't conform to the image of this world, the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what the difference is between conformation and transformation? Right, conforming is what a child does with his Play-Doh to stick it into a mold. It conforms to the mold. Transforming is what happens when you take a ball of clay and you give it to a master potter and say, can you make something out of this? But that's the difference. That, that when we're conforming into another image and we're just sticking ourselves in another mold, that doesn't work. What God says is, you don't need confirmation, you need transformation, right? Give this brain of yours, don't just squish it into something new. Take this brain of yours and give it to me and let me start to mold it into something different. Be transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. I love that in this mental renewal image that he gives us, he's talking about the transformation of our mind, talking about the transformation of our lives. He's talking about renewal, mental renewal, and we see that God's involved in this process, but there's not a lot of steps that he gives us, right? It doesn't say like, hey, if you're anxious, pray about it, you'll be fine. Jesus says, hey, cast your anxieties on me. My, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He gives us some practical stuff, but this is an ongoing process in our lives of giving our brains over to God and asking him to mold them and craft them and create them, transform them into something new and beautiful. As we walk through this series, what we're going to learn is how to invite God into a process of mental transformation and renewal. How to be people who don't just struggle day in and day out and get stuck in this kind of rat's maze of a life or hamster wheel of a life, but how we might say, you know what? Let's just normalize the fact that all of our brains are trying to kill all of us. And let's be a community that invites God together on that journey with us, and let's see what he does. As we walk through the series, we're going to talk about some real stuff. Next week, the title of the sermon is You Lack Impulse Control. Uh, We're going to talk about how Esau, have you heard the story? Jacob and Esau. Every sermon in the series is talking about an Old Testament character who is convinced they're going to die for no good reason. So Esau comes in after a day of hunting, and he's starving, he thinks. He's not going to die. No one who's starving to death screams at his brother like Esau did, right? So he thinks he's going to die. He walks into the room and Jacob says, or he says to Jacob, hey, give me some of that soup. And Jacob says, well, give me your birthright. Like, (laughs) give me your inheritance. And Esau says, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? Give me the dang soup. And because of his lack of impulse control, he throws his family's legacy down the drain for generations. We're going to talk about how real that is when some of us who lack impulse control and we can't put the stuff down are destroying the legacy in our family for generations. Now, on Mother's Day, this is probably the worst Mother's Day sermon ever, but on Mother's Day, <laughs> we're going to talk about how Rachel goes to her husband Jacob and she's so consumed with the fact that she has not been able to have children. She says to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. We're talking about the deep longings of our hearts and what happens when they're unfulfilled and what we, when we do things like that with them where she just ends up having 12 different kids from four different moms with her husband and it, it gets crazy. 
We're talking about Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, where God has done miraculous things in his life, and he can't see it because he's blinded with rage. God says, is it right to be angry? Jonah says, it is. I'm angry enough to die. And because his brain has blinded him to the truth of what God's done around him, he is unable to see the work of God in his life because his brain has clouded his judgment. We're going to pray that God equips us to live lives in the bodies he's given us, to live lives with the broken brains he's given us. And we're going to pray that God transforms our brains as we hand them over to him. Now this week, here are the two things you have to do. It's only two things. We'll start simple. Number one, listen to your brain this week. I don't mean like believe your brain, but listen to your brain. Have you watched the sketch at the beginning of the message? There are a few things that the brain said to them. We'll put them on the screen. One, you're not funny. You're not attractive. You're not interesting. Your mom has dug you out of every hole you've dug for yourself. It's wild to think your wife agreed to marry you, right? These are things their brains are trying to tell them. This week, pay attention to what your brain is saying to you. Because chances are it's false. And maybe there's a tiny bit of truth in it that hurts. But listen to that. And then number two, invite God into this process. Invite him into the conversation. And one of the things that, that I did this last week for the first time was I invited God into my 1 a.m. conversation. I used to just be in a place where I just like lay there and let my brain beat me up till I fell asleep. And then I went through this stage where I just started like rebuking the thoughts like, that's not true, I'm saved, right? But this week I said, you know what? I'm gonna invite God onto this conversation. Right? It's like I'm, on a, I'm gonna pull a third party onto this call, right? So my brain would say, hey, uh, I want you to show you this conversation and see how stupid you were. I'm like, hey, hey, hold on, let me bring a friend, right? Hey, God, come with me. He's kind of like a consultant here, like he evaluates it for me. <laughs> and my brain is saying that I was an idiot there. God, what do you say, right? I just invite him into the conversation. And it was not like this radical transformation in my life or anything. But I think there's something there. That when we start to invite God into that conversation, invite him into that process, he can work with us to start to equip us to live lives in these bodies that he's given to us. When he asks us questions like, who told you you were naked? Is it good to be angry? Do you know what I say about you? This morning, as we continue to worship and as we close in prayer, I do want to take a moment and pray for all of us. All of us experience this. Let's normalize that. All of us experience this. And yet I know that some of us in this room experience this at a deeper level, at a clinical level, at a level where you need to not just pray about it and hope it works out, but you really need to go and talk to someone about that. I'm going to pray that God gives you the courage to, to make a call this week to a counselor, to a friend, to a loved one, to someone in the community, to even come to our prayer room this week and start the conversation about the fact that there's something real and deep and abiding that's harder than just what we're talking about today. We've got some counselors on our website you can go to. We'd love to help you with that. But for all of us, let's lift up our brains and our hearts and our lives to the Lord together as we pray. Let's pray together.